The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. It is a joy and a privilege to come to God's Word together, and we're turning again this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which we started last week, and and you remember, if you were here last week, that we saw Paul begin his letter to the Thessalonians by, by rejoicing, by giving thanks constantly to God for them because of their marks of genuine faith. He commented on their work of faith, their their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. And he also gave thanks for the knowledge that God had chosen them. And he had this knowledge, he had this confidence because of what God had done in their lives, because the gospel came to them in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Well, this morning we're returning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're still in the same section that we were in last week. In other words, here again, Paul is continuing to rejoice and to give thanks for things that he sees in the lives of the Thessalonians. And again, as Paul rejoices over them, we're going to see once again that the Thessalonians give a pattern for genuine faith in Christ, a pattern for the lives of individual believers, and a pattern for the lives of the church. I'm going to start by beginning in verse 4, even though we'll focus on verses 5 through 10. So would you join me in your Bibles as we read 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 10. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word, and it is precious. Let's pray briefly. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would never take for granted because Your word is available to us on devices and in books throughout our house. May we not take for granted what this is, the very word of God to us. We pray that you would work in us for your sake this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The son of Idaho farmers, Jim Rohn, grew up to become a a well-known entrepreneur, businessman, business coach, and trainer, and motivational speaker. 
He spent more than 40 years of his life training business executives from top American corporations. And he's still well known for certain pithy sayings or or quotes of advice that apply to our lives. And one piece of advice that Jim Rohn is particularly remembered for is arguing that each person is typically the average of the five people closest to him. In other words, the people, particularly the four or five people that are closest to us in life, tend to have a tremendous impact on who we are and how we live. And this is, of course, both a warning to us of who we spend time with and who we make those closest to us, but it's also a tremendous encouragement to us that one way that we can intentionally grow as wise and godly people is to surround, intentionally surround ourselves with the people that we would want to be like. And while I know that the Thessalonian Christians that Paul is talking about in this chapter are no longer alive, the description that Paul gives us of these believers and as a church is one we should long to be like. And so perhaps I could say this morning that we should choose these Thessalonian believers as some of those we would want to be closest to us so that they would begin to impact our lives so that their example and testimony would begin to influence our hearts and our lives as we seek to be faithful Christians in a faithful church. Last week, the Thessalonian believers showed us the godly fruits of the gospel at work in their lives. This week, the Thessalonians demonstrate how believers fulfill Jesus' great commission. You remember Jesus' great commission, go into all the world with the good news of the gospel and make disciples of all nations. I think we could summarize maybe the main point of our text this morning by saying that when the Thessalonians turned to Christ, their life and their speech became a powerful testimony for the gospel that impacted the world around them. Or maybe we could, we could shorten this main point to say genuine faith in Christ is a proclaimed faith in Christ. Or maybe, dare I say it, genuine faith in Christ is like a virus. You can't truly have it and not share it with those around you. And I want to look at that main point in three parts because the Thessalonians give us three patterns in this text. They give us a pattern for making disciples, a pattern for evangelism, and a pattern for true conversion. So let's look at each of these patterns this morning. And we'll begin in verses 5 to 7. If you have your Bibles open, look at verses 5 to 7, where we see the Thessalonians making a, are giving us a pattern for making disciples. You see, in these verses, God tells us how he uses us in each other's lives to transform us into faithful disciples of Jesus. You see, in verse 5, Paul begins by saying, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In other words, Paul and Silas and Timothy set an example of lives transformed by the gospel for the Thessalonians. But then in verse 6, we learn that the Thessalonians in turn became imitators of us and the Lord. In other words, the Thessalonians followed the example that Paul, Silas, and Timothy set. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul urged the Corinthians to be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Jesus' life is the ultimate example, and Paul's life, by virtue of his union with Jesus, looked like that of Christ. 
because by faith he imitated Christ. And then he invites others to imitate him just as he imitates Jesus. And that's what the Thessalonians have done. But then if you turn to verse 7, you find that the the chain doesn't stop there. Because in verse 7, the Thessalonians in turn become an example for others to imitate. It says, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. In other words, these verses, 5 through 7, set up this chain of discipleship, chain of imitation, where Paul and the apostles imitate Christ, then the Thessalonians imitated Paul and the apostles, and then they in turn became an example for the whole surrounding area. And this is how the church is supposed to operate. We are both to imitate those around us who are godly, and we are to set an example of godliness for others. And when that happens, God uses us as instruments for godly growth in each other's lives. And I think if most of us step back, we know the power of imitation in each other's lives. It's the most powerful way to learn, to grow, and to change as human beings. We see this probably most evidently with, with babies. How do babies learn to talk? How do they learn to use their, their limbs? How do they learn social interaction? It's by imitating those around us, right? We, you know, we say a lion says this, rawr, and then the baby copies and says, rawr, you know, or, or we make a silly face and stick our tongue out, and then the baby says, and we think it's hilarious and cute. And of course, we think it's much less hilarious and cute when we see them shout no or respond with a particularly unattractive behavior that we realize they learned from us. But imitation isn't just true for babies. Social trends are all about imitation. Just ask any teen girl with her hydroflasked, scrunchy, oversized t-shirt and Birkenstocks. Although I was reflecting as I wrote this that I've now been out of youth ministry for two months, so this might be totally over with by now, and we might be on to something else. But we often teach one another also by imitation. We try to describe something, and, and we don't get it. So we say, well, come over here, and I'll show you. An imitation, an example, is how we learn. And the same pattern is God's pattern for discipleship leading to changed lives. But I want you to notice carefully in in verse 6, look at verse 6 carefully, Paul doesn't just say that the Thessalonians imitated him in general. There's a very specific example that the Thessalonians imitated in Paul and in the Lord and then exemplified for other believers. It says in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers. And here is one key mark of gospel transformation in our lives. It's one key mark that sets God's people apart from the world. One defining mark of living in union with Jesus. And that is that we live in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Last week, I mentioned a book by Paul Miller called The J-Curve. And Paul Miller, in this book, his thesis is simple. His thesis is this. The pattern of Jesus' life is death and suffering and sacrifice of himself, followed by resurrection joy. And if we are united to Jesus by faith, if that is the core of the gospel, then we should expect that God will bring the same pattern repeatedly in our lives. We should expect a regular rhythm of death and suffering and sacrifice of ourselves that leads to resurrection joy. 
That's the pattern of the Christian life. And that's why, in turn, the Thessalonians' lives were such a testimony to the gospel. Because if we think about it, being a nice person is probably an expected pattern for most decent citizens. Going to church is not necessarily a a powerful testimony in and of itself. But finding resurrection joy in the midst of affliction and suffering, that draws notice. That gives evidence of divine power at work in our lives. That is an example that causes the gospel to shine brightly to those around us. And maybe that's just the reminder that we need. Maybe at this time we're facing suffering as a result of our COVID crisis, or maybe there's other ways, whether it's persecution for being a Christian or just the suffering of living in a world that is broken by sin. I know that the burden of of job loss and loneliness, of, of isolation is continuing to weigh on our hearts. And we don't deny the difficulty of that situation. And yet not only do these things not take away our true hope, They are what we would expect our life to look like as we live in this broken world awaiting the hope of resurrection. We expect, because of our union with Christ, to face affliction. Affliction and suffering through the sacrifice of ourselves and difficulties in life around us. But we also receive the power of the Holy Spirit, which gives us resurrection joy as he brings us through that affliction. And he is with us. And he brings us joy through it. And so we may imitate Christ. And my desire is that as a church, we would grow in imitating Christ and Paul and the Thessalonians as we offer an example for others. And that our church as a whole may grow in godliness and finding joy in the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of affliction. This is a pattern for discipleship. Imitating others, setting example for others, particularly for the Thessalonians, by finding joy in the midst of affliction. Well, that's pattern number one. Let's turn to verse eight now. Turn to verse eight and we'll find pattern number two. The second pattern for God's people is a pattern of evangelism. And this verse provides one of the most vivid pictures of a central gospel truth that all believers have a message to share. Paul declares that the word of the Lord sounded forth from the Thessalonians throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Sounded forth is, it's a good translation of this word, but I don't think it really gets the full picture of what Paul is communicating here. See, the word translated sounded forth captures some of the loudest noises that the Thessalonians could have imagined. Trumpet blasts are described with this word. Claps of thunder are described with this word. As I read this, I, I thought about um, uh, a recent experience. Kate and I stayed at an Airbnb before the, the shutdown started. And when we got to our Airbnb, there was a little note uh, on the counter when we walked in. And it said, the town of East Berlin Fire Department still uses the old World War II uh, warning siren for any of its emergencies. If you hear it, do not be alarmed. And the point was, this World War II warning siren was a loud noise that no one could miss. And the point was, it would be alarming to hear it. It would draw your attention. It would draw your notice. That's the kind of loud noise Paul is talking about here. In other words, when the Thessalonians believed the gospel, their way of life represented such a powerful transformation of godliness 
And the words that they spoke gave such a clear testimony to the truth of Christ that it was like a World War II warning siren to the whole region of Macedonia and Achaia. No one in the surrounding area could help but hear it. In fact, you, you see how powerful their testimony was when Paul finishes that verse by saying that their faith has gone everywhere so that Paul, Silas, and Timothy don't have any evangelistic work to do anymore. He says, we don't have to say anything because your testimony of Christ has already gone everywhere in this region. John Stott, a commentator, puts it this way. He says, God intends his church to be like a sounding board, bouncing off the vibrations of the gospel, or like a a telecommunications satellite, which first receives and then transmits messages. In fact, he says, this is God's simplest plan for world evangelization. If every church had been faithful, the world would long ago have been evangelized. But sadly, isn't it the case that so often the church's witness is more like the whisper of a mouse than a clap of thunder? Now, I would immediately say, of course, one of the things Kate and I have so appreciated about Westminster over the 10 years that we have been here has been its clear commitment to missions. We're so grateful for that. It's been a joy to see the faithful giving to missions and interest in missions in our congregation. And yet, we have room to grow as a church we have room to grow in this area as well. While we've supported many missionaries, I continue to pray that Westminster would send more missionaries from our own congregation. It's one of the things that I've prayed about regularly over the last years, that God would be raising up amongst our teens and our families people who will be part of the next generation of global missions. Two members of our church's Great Commission Committee attended a conference put on by Pioneers, a mission sending agency back in November. And one of the things that Pioneers challenged each church was to come up with a list of 10 families currently part of of our church who could, who would be in a position, who would have gifts and skills to go as missionaries around the world. I wonder if you would consider putting your names on that list. We don't just need pastors, though we need that. We need doctors, we need engineers, we need people with practical construction skills and more to go live among the nations as a witness and a testimony for Jesus Christ. And so the question for each of us is who will go? Who will put our names on that list? I'm also so thankful, of course, for our congregation and its witness locally. This is not just about global missions. This is also about our testimony amongst those around us. And again, I'm so thankful for Westminster, for our our witness to our refugee community, for our witness to the schools through Bible to School and Child Evangelism Fellowship, to other local ministries, for for Life, Pregnancy Centers, now Align, and, and other ministries. And yet the Thessalonians did not impact their whole region just by participating in some programs. That can be part of it. But those around them naturally and automatically heard the gospel from the Thessalonians because it oozed out of their lives. It was a natural product of who they were. And often this doesn't come by street evangelism. It comes by transformed lives that look differently because of Christ, lived out in the daily rhythms of our lives. It comes when we don't join in the regular rounds of complaining and, and uh, Monday morning blues at the office or school because we know our God is sovereign and we have undiminished hope so that our hearts are not bogged down by the things 
that could weigh into complaining. Or maybe it comes because we forgive and bear with annoying or difficult people because we know that Christ has forgiven us and put up with us and all of our failings. Pastor Rick Phillips adds this comment to to this verse. He says, as the word spread through Greece and beyond about the Thessalonian Christians, the news told not only of their God-revealed message, but also of their faith. Husbands were astonished at the conduct of their wives who had converted to Christ. Friends and neighbors commented on new priorities seen amongst those who had embraced the gospel. So profound was the change among so many people that news of a significant event in Thessalonica began spreading to every corner of Macedonia and Achaia. See, these are concrete opportunities that you and I have to sound forth Christ. They're concrete opportunities we have whether we're teens in school, whether we're adults in the workplace, or whether we're living in a retirement community. That this transformation of gospel lives would be evident. I know as I reflect on my own life that I have not always lived with this type of gospel clarity and honesty as often as I should. But I do see ways that God's Spirit is at work in me toward those ends. And my prayer is that God would continue to work in each of us individually and Westminster as a congregation to continue to be a church that declares the gospel faithfully through our lives and through our words so that the gospel would go forth from Westminster as a thunderclap of hope throughout Lancaster County and throughout the world. Because that's the pattern for evangelization that God gives us in this text. Well, we've seen a pattern of discipleship. We've seen a pattern of evangelization. If you'd turn finally to verses 9 and 10, look at verses 9 and 10 for our third pattern where Paul gives us the pattern for true conversion. Word was spreading about the change that took place in the Thessalonians' lives. Well, what exactly was that change? What brought about the change? What did that change entail? Paul here gives us a, a threefold description of true conversion that multiple commentators have, have said is the fullest description of conversion in the New Testament. And we can summarize it by saying that true conversion involves turning, serving, and waiting. Paul says there in verse 9 that the Thessalonians turned to God from idols. When we think of idols, oftentimes we think of a statue and maybe we think of turning from idols as just like deciding I'm going to switch religions or switch insurance carriers or something like that. To turn from idols to God was a dramatic transformation in the lives of a Greek. Because for the Greeks, the Greek gods were not simply powers they believed in or statues they had in their house. The, the Greek gods were, were the, the thing that were feared, the thing that could bring power to bear on your lives. But they were also part of the social fabric of their society. Social life, the calendar, the economy, a city's identity, all depended upon these gods. You think maybe of Paul, who when he brought the gospel to Ephesus, a riot took place because people were turning from the goddess Artemis to Jesus Christ. And the tradesmen stirred up the city and said, this will destroy our economic trade and our city's honor if people turn from these gods to serve Jesus Christ. And so turning from idols represented a break with the very things that before had offered identity and pleasure and power and protection 
and given structure and purpose to the Thessalonians' lives. Dr. Alan Tippett was an Australian missionary to Polynesian tribes, and he tells many stories of how the gospel spread because particular people, when they became followers of Jesus, made public demonstrations that they no longer feared the wrath of the idols that they had worshipped for years. He tells of one chief who struck symbolically the priestess of his old god with a banana club to demonstrate that no harm would come to his disrespect. Another who ate a sacred cake to demonstrate that the power of the gods was nothing compared to the power and protection of Christ. And Dr. Tippett concluded this. He said, the only real and effective way of proving the power of their new faith was to demonstrate that the old religion had lost its power and its fear. Now, we can pr- probably readily acknowledge that silver statues and, and sacred cakes don't have a lot of appeal uh, or power in our lives. They're not the things that capture our hearts. But the idols that do capture our hearts make equal offers to protect us and provide identity and hope in life. One African man commenting on witchcraft said, Now, of course, you Americans don't need witchcraft. You have money. And his point was that witchcraft, idols, were the thing that protected them from things they feared and offered security and hope to their lives. His point was that in America, it's typically money that gets us the things that we need and offers protection from the things that we fear. Paul similarly argues that coveting, covetousness, is idolatry. But of course, it's not just money. It could be good health. It could be sexual sin. It could be sports. It could be kids and grandkids and so many other things that fill the role of idol for us. And I think perhaps the question for you and me is whether we will apply Dr. Tippett's saying, whether we, he would, we would apply his standard to our lives. He says the only real and effective way of proving the power of our new faith is to demonstrate that the old religion to demonstrate that our idols, whatever they might be, have lost their power and their fear because of the sovereign power of Jesus in whom we trust. And so the question is, do our lives demonstrate that the things we hold dear in this world have lost their power over us, have lost their hold over us, that we no longer fear their loss because we have a new faith and a new sovereign power in Jesus Christ And our new faith in him is demonstrated most powerfully when we turn away from those things that used to provide meaning and purpose in our lives and yet no longer hold us captive. True conversion starts by turning from idols. But true conversion is also marked by serving the living and true God. You see there in verse 9, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. It struck me as I was thinking about this passage this week that we tend to talk a lot as Christians about what we should turn from. We turn from sin. We turn from the things uh, like our idols. We need Jesus to save us from sinfulness. As if the entirety of Christianity is what we turn from or give up. And it's true that that's at the core of Christianity. What we turn from and Jesus' forgiveness for for our sinfulness is at the heart and core of Christianity. But if we only focus on what we turn from, that's a Christianity devoid of any hope or joy. Because true conversion brings us into the service of the king. 
Christians are not like people who left the world's party to kind of try to make our way and wander alone for a while until Jesus comes back again. No, Christians are like those who left the aimless partying because we were called into service of the King. It's a calling. It's an active part of our lives, an active definition of who we are as Christians. True conversion always leads one into active service of the King. That's one of the marks of true conversion, a heart that rejoices in serving Jesus and a life that actively serves his kingdom and his people. True conversion is marked by turning, by serving, finally by waiting, and you see that in verse 10. Their conversion meant that they would now wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In this statement, Paul reminds us of the core truths of the gospel. He reminds us that Jesus will return from heaven, that God has guaranteed his return from heaven by raising him from the dead, and that when he returns, Jesus will deliver all those who have put their faith in him from the wrath of God that is coming. This verse puts such a heavy emphasis on Jesus' deliverance from the wrath of God that is to come. And sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. But John Stott describes God's wrath as neither an impersonal process nor an arbitrary vindictive outburst. Rather, God's wrath is his holy and uncompromising antagonism to evil with which he refuses to negotiate. And as people who are born sinners, with whose sin God will not negotiate, Christians have set their hope on Jesus, the Son of God who died in our place to deliver us from the wrath of God when he comes. And this is such a beautiful description of, of Christian hope, such a beautiful description of God's people, that all those who are truly converted by faith in Jesus Christ are waiting people. We are like a child on the morning of his birthday party who may continue to play outside and engage in other things, but those are not his focus. His eye is always on the clock, wondering when his friends will arrive and when his party will begin. For us as Christians, we are certainly engaged in this world. We're certainly actively serving God in this world, but we do so with our eyes always on the clock, always waiting for the return of Jesus. And this is such an encouragement to our hearts. Because while the details of this life matter, there are real issues of of fear and of hope, of blessing and of loss, of justice and of injustice that we live through in this life. But these details are not ultimate. As men and women of faith, we are primarily, above all, awaiting people. People waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. So turning, serving, waiting, the marks of true conversion. And for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, this offers us a pattern of what God's Spirit is at work on in our lives and a reminder of what is most true and highest priority for us as his people. But maybe if I could close with this comment, maybe there are some of you who have not yet put your faith in Jesus as your Savior. And your question as you hear this, as as you're pondering this, is, is what in the world would motivate someone to change the whole focus of their lives from the concrete pleasures and securities and issues of this life to put their hope on something vague and hypothetical that hasn't happened now for 2,000 years. 
Why would we do this? And the answer is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who demonstrated his divinity when he came by his life, by his miracles, by the fulfillment of God's promises, then died on the cross in our place. And then against every expectation, rose again to new life. Now he has risen to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and is pouring out his Holy Spirit on his people, bringing hope with power to all the hearts of those who put their trust in him. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the offer of salvation that he gives. Deliverance from the just wrath of God that is coming against sin and evil and rebellion against him. And so the question for every one of us this morning is, would we put our hope on Jesus, our one hope for deliverance? Would we turn from idols to serve the living God and wait for the return of Jesus Christ? Well, we began this morning with an encouragement to surround ourselves with the example of the Thessalonian believers, to strengthen our hearts as we seek to live as faithful followers of our King. Perhaps now we're in a position to give a post-it note summary of what we are hoping to imitate. To imitate a pattern of discipleship. To imitate the example of Jesus and the apostles and to set example for others by living with joy in the midst of affliction. To set a pattern, to follow a pattern of evangelization that the hope of the gospel would sound forth from our lives. And to follow a pattern of true conversion, of turning, serving, and waiting for the return of Jesus. May we grow in these things for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the pattern of the Thessalonian Christians, for the pattern of their church. We pray that your Spirit would work these things in our hearts more and more to the glory of God. Your Spirit would work these things in in our life as a church more and more, that the gospel would be evident in us and through us and to the world for the hope of salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.